Well, right now, Bet365 are offering a wide range of markets, including first, last or anytime goal scorers. With over 45 million members, it's the world's favourite online betting company. We've got wall-to-wall Premier League football with games being played nearly every day. And with Bet365 Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals and more to create your own personalised bet. And if you can't watch all the games live with Bet365's Match Live feature, you can follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play, Apple App Store, over 18s only. Please gamble responsibly. Jordan, you're a great professional. Well, tell me you're going to get absolutely rotten tonight, like me. <laughs> Possibly. Uh, Come on, John, go for it, lad. Enjoy yourself. Cheers, hey! Cheers. So, does it get any better than this? The answer's probably no. Champions League winners, World Club Cup winners, and now their hands on the Premier League crown. It's been a mad few days uh, digesting what Liverpool have achieved, but it's time to savour. Uh, hopefully, you've checked out some of the fantastic Liverpool articles on The Athletic, which have gone into incredible detail on this historic achievement. Let's talk with uh, Simon Hughes and James Pierce, who've been writing those pieces. Um, hi, guys. I, I think we should start by thanking everyone who's been listening to the pod. Loads of great feedback. Um, I especially love the comment uh, from IDAD, who said last week, love the pod and your work. Hughes and Pierce are a hell of a partnership. And he goes on to compare Simon to the poetry of Beardsley and James <laughs> to the relentlessness of Rush. Wow. Have you ever looked at it that way, guys? Uh, I can't say I have, no. I think that's the perfect summation, yeah. <laughs> I'm, glad he, I'm, I'm glad he's not saying that I look like Peter Beardsley. <laughs> but you're, the, you're the poetry of Beardsley. Uh, fantastic. <laughs> but thank you very much for all the feedback, uh, particularly over the past week. Um, let's get to matters at hand. It's, it's taken a monumental effort to get to this point, Simon, the path has been long and hard for Liverpool. This hasn't been any easy scenario for them to conquer. No, I mean, I've been thinking about it a lot over the weekend, just, um, you know, obviously reflecting on not just the last five years since Jürgen Klopp came in, but but the last 30 years and, and beyond that, really. And it still quite hasn't sunk in. I mean, I think part of that's down to, the you know, the circumstance of... You know, the moments when they, they actually clinched the league title. But yeah, I mean, to, to go from where they were in 2015 to where they are now as, you know, um, reigning European champions. I've been corrected on that a few times on Twitter because obviously they've been knocked out, but they still are, you know, whether they like it or not. And uh, obviously now Premier League champions, World Club champions as well. It's just an unbelievable period for the club. You know, I don't think... Anyone really in any sane mind can 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 claim that Liverpool don't deserve to be in the position that they're in. You know they've they've done things the steady way, almost the traditional way. I know they've, they've signed some big players at, at certain points for big money, but I've said it many times. You know that they, they do operate in a real economic world, and you know they they, they haven't out, outstretched themselves. So incredible, incredible achievements, and. Um, yeah, I think people should just try and enjoy it for as long as it lasts, really, because you just know with football, you know, the, 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 so the next challenge comes along very quickly. Um, and before we know it, the next season will be starting. <laughs> but we did a podcast immediately after we knew that Liverpool were the Premier League champions. James, have you, have you sat back and thought a bit more and sort of digested the full meaning of this now? 
Yeah, I, th- I think, you know, what, it's only in the days after when it all, it all seemed a bit surreal, to be honest, on Thursday night. Because I've got to be honest, I didn't really expect Chelsea to, to get anything out of that game. And so it was just a, a, a strange old night all round. But yeah, as Simon said, over the weekend, it just everything calms down a little bit. And just the, the significance of this achievement just to so many people all around the world. I mean, I've been doing a fair bit of uh, TV and, and radio chats with people about Liverpool being crowned champions and, you know, and just the interest is just absolutely phenomenal. Like, you know, from Ghana and Dubai and Australia and <laughs> Scandinavia and the States and Turkey. And it, I think that's the thing. Over, once, over a few days, you just realise what this means to so many people everyone's got their own stories haven't they of either either there's a generation or you know, almost almost two generations who had never ever seen liverpool you know reach these heights and then you've got others like like myself and who who, who remember liverpool being crowned champions last time but back then it was almost you know it was okay we've done it again that's uh, you know it, you know no no great fuss you only have to listen to the lads who were part of that team in 1990 to know that you know there was no massive outpouring of emotion because it was it was so usual back then. So yeah, I think over the last few days it it just has kind of sunk in. It's just lovely to think that we won't ever have to do another podcast or another talk about <laughs> how many years how many years it's been since Liverpool have won the league. Can this team deliver where all the other ones of of just before had had, had fallen a bit short? In the space of a few days, the conversation seems to go from that sort of celebratory element to how do you move on? How, how does this Liverpool side start to replicate the great red sides of the 70s or 80s or the Man United side of, of the 90s? That becomes more of the conversation. Can, can indeed they dominate, Simon? Or is it not as easy as that anymore? Well, it's certainly not easy, but the, the, there's a chance that they, they could. I mean, you, you look at the collective age of the squad and then the players coming up through the ranks. It, it, and, you know, the, the fact they've got a world-class manager who... Is still relatively young. I think Jurgen Klopp's fifty-four. I think I'm right in saying who's signed to a long-term deal. You know, there's there's no reason why they can't. I mean, I, I guess you've got to look at what they're up against as well. You know, the, the, uh, it'd be interesting to see what happens with Manchester City and and the Champions League and how that will affect them. Whether you know the being able to focus just on the Premier League will make them stronger in that competition, or whether it'll be harder for them to to attract players because they might not be in the Champions League. Meanwhile, you know, Manchester United, you know, how close are they? I'm not, I'm not sure that they're very close to, certainly to Liverpool's level of abilities and, you know, the, the sense of collectiveness in the team. Chelsea are, are on the way up and are always going to have a bit of money to spend. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think at this moment in time, it's going to be very difficult for another club to oust Liverpool. Uh, you know, you'd expect them to... To, to be right up there again next season doesn't necessarily mean that you know one season they win the league the next season they automatically win it again I think the challenge becomes slightly different I mean people say when you win the league you become a target but I think Liverpool have been a target for a long time now and I think if you look at the way other teams face them I think you know Crystal Palace the other night sort of summed it up really that Crystal Palace very very good team but set up very defensively and just hoped that they might nick something and you know that that's the way it is for Liverpool now so I think from the team's point of view in terms of recruitment it, it, in many ways it's got to be about like sort of trying to figure out ways of unlocking defences of, of, of teams that are going to try and stop them because unless they have you know a, a serious injury to one of the front three it's going to be very hard for, for teams to, to do that because they're just so good I mean the, the standard of the player people are saying well we need to sign new players but 
I know James has mentioned it in the past, and I do agree with him on this. It's very difficult to sign players who are better than what they've got already. I, I can't really think of too many players which who would improve this Liverpool team, even being totally honest. So, yeah, they're, they're going to have to choose carefully, but I, I think that the club is set up now in a way that it never has been before, both on and off the pitch. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a harmony between, you know, the boardroom and the, and the management you know, it's going to be very difficult to stop them, I think, and that that's really good. So, yeah, we, we, we will see, but I'd be pretty confident. I mean, it's, it's a juggernaut of a football team at the moment, isn't it? So you do question, as you're saying there, how does it improve? I mean, is it is it gauged on points? Surely there's some sort of ceiling as to, as to how good <laughs> you can be, James, because we're seeing one of the very best, aren't we? Yeah, I, I don't think it's... I'm not sure that much can be improved on when you look at the numbers. I mean, the... The bar has been raised just so ridiculously high. I mean, Manchester City set new standards initially, didn't they? And I think that that drove Liverpool on. It, you know, it made it open Klopp's eyes to just how close to perfection Liverpool would need to be to to first compete with City last season and then and then surpass them this time around. So, yeah, in, in terms of results, I'm not I'm not too sure that you know. I, th- I think it really the challenge is can Liverpool get close to these heights. Again, you know, mm. can they? I, I certainly don't. I don't look at this Liverpool team and knowing the personalities and knowing Klopp and his backroom staff and the setup there. I don't. I don't see any kind of easing off in terms of you know we've almost like we've scaled the mountain now. We, you know, we'll take take our foot off a little bit because I know Klopp spoke to the players at Melwood when they when they got back together on on Sunday about focus and you know he just desperate to ensure they finish this season strongly and put down a marker for. For next season, so yeah, it's it's going to be hard. To, I don't, I, I just don't think it's realistic that you know, someone asked me earlier about you know, are we going to see a period of a dominance like Liverpool of the eighties, and I, I just don't think that's realistic anymore. I think you know Manchester City with their wealth, they're bound to come back strong. We've already seen Chelsea, you know, they they've already made a statement in the transfer market. United have got such a huge gap to try and bridge that they're gonna they're bound to spend big as well so it will it'll definitely be more competitive next season you know I don't I don't I don't think it's remotely realistic to think Liverpool run away with it again but you know the the most pleasing thing I think that that, that really fuels your desire for watching this Liverpool team going forward is you you look at this team and and you look at the ages of the players and and they have got I believe an awful lot left in the tank I mean even the front three at, at, at 28 you know you look at someone like Trent Alexander-Arnold at 21 what he's achieved already in the game you know with the exception of James Milner I think he's the only one that you could say you know, probably his, his best days are behind him but then he's almost superhuman in terms of his fitness levels and the way that he leads his life so mm. and then when you watch Nico Williams come on like he did and make an impact off the bench against Palace and we know the talent that, that Curtis Jones and Harvey Elliott boast, it, it really does whet your appetite for, for what this team could go on and, and add to the trophy cabinet. I mean, just by the the nature of the club, they, they live in the shadow of this former greatness. They're reminded of it all the time. If they go to Anfield, if they go to, to Melwood, it's, it's the pictures, it's the pictures of the trophies, etc. That must in some way feed into the hunger for more from these players, Si. We've said before, but the manner of the way that the title was clinched. I would imagine straight away, you know, it, it, it's not the way the players would have wanted it, put it that way, but, you know, nevertheless, you can tell how excited they were. The sense of achievement was enormous, but a lot of, a lot of football is about experience, and I guess they haven't experienced that moment in front of a 
fully packed Anfield or, you know, even an away day where there's an away end to celebrate with. I, I, I understand, you know, a lot of titles over the last 15, 20 years have been clinched, you know, when, when, when teams aren't playing. But nevertheless, I, th- I think that straight away will be one thing that a lot of the players would think, you know what, it'd be great to experience that at some point. But yeah, I mean, I, I do think, you know, that Liverpool have been so far away from, from winning the title for such a, a long time. I mean, people talk about sort of the title chases that they've had. If we're being honest, it was only really 2014 where they were really, really close. And I know I know 2009, they had a good go, but they were always a little bit behind Man United, if we're being totally honest. And then there was a couple of periods, I think it was 97 and, and maybe 96, where, you know, they, they, they were close, but not close enough. But... You know, now they've got that off the back. I mean, you know, we hear this every year, you know, it's our year. Well, you know, I don't think anybody's going to be using that as a gag anymore because it's it's obviously, you know, 2020 is Liverpool's year. So that's a massive weight off of burden off the, off the club's shoulders. It's going to be interesting to see how the fans react as well because for a whole generation of fans are, on, you know, are, under, are in uncharted territory in terms of, well, you know, that, that big monkey that, that's been there for, for, for such a long period of time for so many people is no longer there. So how how do they react now, you know, to Liverpool's status as, as a club changes straight away and the expectations change? So, you know, I, I think that the players will, will be looking around Anfield and realising, remembering that, you know, that one title is great, but, you know, if you want your name down in, in folklore properly, you do it year after year after year after year. Now, obviously, that's... It's not going to happen, you know, relentlessly. There's going to be seasons when, you know, things don't go Liverpool's way, but there should be an expectation from within the club, whether that's the manager, the players, the, the owners now. That should be the next target, in my view. You know, they've got to be competing most years in the Champions League and, and the Premier League because that's where, you know, that's where all of the best, the biggest clubs are judged now. This is the Red Agenda on The Athletic. Premier League football's back, of course, and we're off in a 30-day free trial to The Athletic for a limited time only. Go to theathletic.com forward slash Liverpool pod to sign up and enjoy the best of football writing. It includes some pretty amazing articles on Liverpool's Premier League triumph. Uh, Michael Cox goes in-depth on the 10 tactical innovations that led to the title win. Ollie Kay has written about the steps the club need to take to ensure it isn't a one-off. Matt Slater's got a piece on there uh, in the coming days, charting how the Liverpool brand has risen again. Of course, Simon and James done some unbelievable pieces, including Simon's uh, piece on John Henderson, which we'll talk about a little bit later in this podcast. To read all that, go to theathletic.com forward slash Liverpool pod and sign up for a free trial. Um, Simon mentioned um, the fans there and and perhaps what it is that they want now. Does it in any way change their thinking of of what is most important, James? Where's the fans' mindset after this Premier League win? (laughs) Do you know what? I I just think it it just removes any sense of that kind of anxiety and and nervousness that, that sometimes we've seen creep in because, you know, it hasn't just been a a target or a desire it's been an absolute obsession hasn't it winning the title so yeah I, I see only positives on that front in terms of I think you know Jurgen Klopp has spoken about it numerous times about the inspiration that that both he and his staff and the players take from from the support they get yeah I don't you know it's certainly not going to reduce the levels of fanaticism and and the noise on match days and, and, all, and all the rest of it but I think what it will do is it just I think it just means that Klopp talks about, you know, not wanting to carry history in a in a rucksack on your back. You know, in terms of talks about how it 
he felt that at times it's weighed people down and and now this Liverpool team have made their own history you know there isn't there's no reason to to fear anything there's no you know there, there will no longer be any talk of as Simon said is this Liverpool's year snigger snigger talk about them bottling it and all the rest of it which even last season was absurd when I don't know you can our team can get 97 points and still get accused of bottling it but all of that is now gone and you know all of that can you know that can only be positive going forward in terms of uh, of being able to add to this this remarkable collection the trophies that that Klopp has already put together you sense the players because you, you've seen the interviews in the aftermath of being, I say, crowned. They've, they've not been handed it yet, but obviously the, the, the knowledge that they've won this league title, Simon, you, you sense the players want a lot more of this. Are there any particular interviews or, or people, you know, your Virgil van Dijk, your Alison Beckers, because they've been all been on LFC TV and we've seen them in other places as well. Are there any that stand out to you as maybe making a striking point as to what they want to go on to achieve? It's not based on stuff that they've said over the last couple of days, just the way that they act, you know, and have acted in the past. I don't think, you know, just because they've won, they've achieved something once, it means that they're, you know, they're happy with the lot in life. You know, if you, if you look at, you know, I know they've been locked out the Champions League and, it, you know, might be, some might consider it to be a bad, bad example, but the, the performances this season, the Champions League, you know, have been in keeping with with where they've been in the past in terms of the level of intensity and the the, the desire to go and to go and get results. I mean, when when Liverpool won the Champions League last summer, I remember having a chat with somebody, you know, sort of quite high up behind the scenes at Liverpool, and I was quite surprised because I said to him, you know, the target surely now has got to be has got to be the league. And they were like, well, yeah, obviously, he said, but we, we want to win the league and the Champions League. You know, that, that has to be the aim, that every, you know, every year to go for both. And, you know, he, he was reflecting that that was Jürgen Klopp's aim as well. So, obviously, Liverpool have won the Champions League and the league in separate seasons, but they haven't won both in the same season. So that is another thing, you know, that that's where, you know, absolute legends are made. I mean, I know a lot of these players are going to fall under the legendary category just because of, you know, get, getting 30 years out the way. But if he was to go and win both in the same season, which they almost did, you know, let's not forget, well, 12, 13 months ago, you know, it's not, they weren't that far away then. They're going to be arguably in a better position to go and do it again over the next couple of years. So I think that'll be the next target. And it's just the way the players conduct themselves generally that just makes me think, you know, the, these aren't slackers. You know, Jürgen Klopp will not tolerate a drop in, drop in standards. He'll be desperate himself, you know, to go and do something that he hasn't achieved before, you know, European and, and domestic glory in the same season. I mean, he, he's obviously a great football manager, one of the best world managers alongside Pep Guardiola, but he hasn't done that in his career. He hasn't, he's, he's got to the Champions League final, you know, won the Bundesliga, but he never done, combined it in the same season. So that, that has to be the next target. I'd be surprised if it wasn't. I, I, I doubt that the players necessarily talk about it or have to talk about it. I think it'd just be a natural thing that they'll think, well, we haven't done that. You know, it's something that we, we've got to go and try and do. I mean, above all this is, is FSG and obviously their vision for, for the football club. So how ambitious are they? I know you, you've spoken with the chairman, Tom Werner, James. I have, yeah. Yeah, I had uh, quite a long conversation with him on the phone last, uh, what was it, probably Friday afternoon. And... Um, yeah, I think I think they have to take a lot of credit in this, as you know, as we've spoken about previously. When you probably Liverpool's lowest ebb over those thirty years was was just after they they bought the club in October twenty ten, when 
you thought about the absolute state of the place, both on the field and off it. You know, that wretched derby performance at Goodison. Roy Hodgson in charge. People like Paul Koncheski and Christian Paulson wearing the shirt and a Liverpool team that were only off the bottom of the table on goal difference. So it's... It's been an amazing journey for them, and it hasn't certainly hasn't been plain sailing. I think FSG would be the first to admit they've made some mistakes along the way. And Tom Werner admitted to me that he said, "You know, I'd be lying if I if I said I didn't doubt at certain periods over that decade whether we would get to this." But he said this this was always the target. This was what we were working towards. Um, you know, I think they were very upfront from the start in terms of they were never gonna it was never gonna be an Abramovich or a Sheikh Mansur situation it was you know in Liverpool of course you know for them it was a an unbelievable business opportunity um but but it was also they knew that you know there was the chance to to basically be the 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 owners of you know an iconic sporting institution that had fallen on hard times and what satisfaction they'd be able to get from from helping to revive it and they've they've certainly done that I mean you know I think you'd have to say the appointment of Jurgen Klopp in in 2015 is without a shadow of a doubt their their greatest achievement because you know I think he is so integral to everything we've seen since. But it goes a lot deeper than that. You know, you think about the the stadium dilemma that they inherited. You know, what an unbelievable addition to the stadium the new main stand is. You know, the new fifty million pound training ground at Kirby, which is close to completion and will be finished this summer. You know, the sixty million pound redevelopment of Anfield Road End, which is on hold just for twelve months for the pandemic. But he said. You know, they're absolutely 100% committed to making that happen. So, you know, of course, there's been bumps in the road along the way. You know, not long ago, there was the, the U-turn over the furlough decision, you know, a misjudgment that was, that was quickly put right, just like they they reacted quickly and put right after, you know, there was the, the quite right, the outrage over the planned ticket increases. But there's been a lot more good than bad. And I think, you know, they, they've put a structure in place. That's the thing that has enabled Liverpool to flourish. You know, you... Mike Gordon keeps a lo- very low profile, but you know he he essentially runs Liverpool day to day. And Simon knows better than me just you know just ha- you know how integral he's been to all this. And you know the appointment of Michael Edwards as sporting director as well. Just um, you know again someone who doesn't crave the limelight, but someone who's made a massive contribution to to put in Liverpool where they are today with just how good the recruitment has been. I mean, supporters in general are generally very suspicious, aren't they, of football club owners? <laughs> That's across the board, isn't it? Mm. And I think when FSG took over in, what, 2010? Mm. But because the years that have preceded it were extremely rocky, to say the least, that mm. there was a question mark already against them. And over the last 10 years, all right, lots of questions have been asked, but you can't help but stand back and say... They probably have exceeded expectations massively. I think, you know, they've been very responsible um, financially. You know, one of, the, one of the biggest things which gets overlooked, you know, the biggest achievements that they, they've had is, is, is obviously the decision to stay at Anfield and, and rebuilding the main stands, you know, because that, that has been transformative for the for the club's finances, has put Liverpool on a, a different playing field. And I know they're... The Anfield Road is is sort of the the, the development of that is, is suspended for the time being with coronavirus, but hopefully that'll get done. You know, so you always sort of look at how things might look when an owner or a player or a manager leaves. You know, it's always how how you leave. I think that you're almost judged. You know, and, and what hap- what sort of state the club is in, and I've got no doubt that the club will be in a good financial state when 
when they do eventually depart, if they ever do decide to depart. I mean, I suspect that the sort of they might they might they might stay for quite a long time. There's no signs of them wanting to sell up. So. Yeah, I mean, they inherited uh, a lot of emotional baggage. You know, let's not forget just how um, it was a terrible time, Liverpool's history, you know, under under Hicks and Gillette. And the club was at civil war, every level at the club, you know, manager struggling with the people who were running the club above him, people below the manager, not necessarily always believing in his direction. And then the fan base was split as well because people say, well, the Liverpool fans got... Hicks and Gillette out, but there was a lot of people who were quite sceptical about that, really. It gets forgotten that sort of, you know, the worker spirits of Shankly and, you know, various other groups, you know, they, they weren't backed by everyone. I mean, there's a lot of people who obviously did back them, but there was still people who thought, well, our role is just to support the club. And it was a terrible time, so they inherited that. But equally, they did know that they were, you know, getting Liverpool at a knockdown price, that there's a reason for that. And also, you know, a bit of a misconception, really, because... You know, as you said there, Steve, at the beginning, football club owners always get stick and David Moore's got a huge amount of stick. I think if you take on a football club, you know, if you're expecting everybody's going to pat you on the back all the time, you know, you, you, you're you going to find it quite difficult, particularly at a club like Liverpool, in a city like Liverpool, which, you know, as I've written about it in, in various pieces the last few weeks, you know, doesn't always... Um, is always is always willing to question authority. Let's put it that way. So, mm. you know, they've they've inherited a lot of things that maybe they haven't appreciated. But to be fair to them, I think what they have done well as well is is when when they've got things wrong, they've been quick to correct them. People might be cynical about that and say, well, you know, that the PR around certain decisions, they might have weighed it up and realised the PR was so bad. But at the end of the day, if you correct a bad decision, then, then fair enough, you know, as far as I'm concerned. And they have done that. But above everything, you know, let's not forget they appointed Jürgen Klopp. They managed to get Jürgen Klopp through the yeah. door, which for me, and I understand there's a lot of important people. Mike Gordon's massive for Liverpool. Michael Edwards has, has proven himself a very efficient operator, particularly with sales and, you know, the use of data. I, I think in the past... I, I sort of felt that data was leading the decision-making rather than contributing towards the conclusion, which always should be the way. Now that they've got Jürgen Klopp, who believes in, in data-led research, they've also got a manager who, who believes in that, but can make decisions independent of that. So he uses data to, to put himself in a better position to make more informed decisions, which is the best way. It's the way it should be. But Jürgen Klopp, for me, just, you know, the day he walked in, that the whole club felt differently. To, to the way it had before. I felt, I remember 2015, that day in October, it just felt like Liverpool won a dif different platform again just by his appointments. And since then, it's just been a period of unbroken success. So, incredible times. And FSG do deserve a lot of credit for helping create the environment off the field, which has allowed the manager to go and be successful. Well, on Jürgen, you two have written the, uh, collectively written the definitive article of Jürgen Klopp's football journey. I think what stands out most to me is, is the humility that goes behind the man, James. Yeah, it's certainly one of his greatest strengths. I think you only had to only had to listen to him in his his, his press conference did a couple of days ago, and I asked him about Steven Gerrard's comments that this this title win puts him in the same bracket as as Shankly, Paisley, and Dalglish, and just you know how, how dismissive he was of that in terms of no 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 not not at all and he's you know you and again even in the immediate aftermath on Thursday night there he was you know so quick to to pay tribute to you know Kenny Dogleash to pay tribute to Stephen Gerrard for those that had been before you know he he said you know he'd kept the kind of the flame burning and 
and, and the praise for his backroom staff, for Pep Linders, for Peter Krawitz, for John Achterberg, all those ones. He was, it's just the way, the way that he is. You know, he's not remotely egocentric and he's, and that, that is one, un, undoubtedly one of his biggest strengths because it's like, you know, his, his personality just radiates across the whole club. And I think, you know, you, in, in that piece that me and Simon done, hopefully did together, hopefully, you know, that, that does come across, you know, in terms of, you know, of, of course he's this huge figure, but, you know, he, he, he's not someone who's, who's ever wanted people around him who just tell him how great he is. He, you know, he actually, he doesn't just ask to be challenged on stuff. He demands it, you know, in, in these staff meetings they have, you know, he, he wants people to, to, to voice their opinions and, and, you know, he, he wants experts around him. He doesn't see them as a, as a threat to his authority. He just sees them as, as helping Liverpool collectively be, be better. And we, we've seen that in terms of, you know, just there's so much kind of emphasis at times, I guess, on his personality and on, you know, the clop hugs and the beaming smile and all the rest of it. it. It kind of, sometimes it does get overlooked, you know, the just how meticulous he is in terms of the attention to detail, you know, everything that, that goes into planning every single training session, every, you know, the two years ago when he decided, right, you know, the set pieces, why are we so mediocre at set pieces? You know, it doesn't only have to be teams in the bottom half of the table who are limited attacking-wise that that can be good at set pieces. And then, bang, Liverpool are now the best at set pieces in the league. You know, people scoffing at him when he appointed Thomas Gronemark, the throwing coach, and, and mocking and saying, you know, I've heard it all now. You know, what on earth do you need a throwing coach for? And then, you know, there's so many examples you could pick where, you know, both defensively and offensively, throw-ins and, and taking set pieces quickly have been been so important to Liverpool. You know, Mona Nemo, the transformation in the nutrition side of the club, um, you know, on the data side, as, as Simon said, the way in which he's embraced that with people like Ian Graham and even with the way the transfers, you know, they, it'd be so easy for him as a manager to like bask in the glory of just how successful someone like Mo Salah has been. Yet you ask him about Mo Salah and he'll tell you, you know, Michael Edwards was massively pushing for that. The work that Dave Fallows and Barry Hunter did. You know, he's he's so quick to deflect everything, and and that helps create such a an amazing climate. I think to work in where everyone is so enthused and bought into it. Yeah, I mean, he instills belief where other men fail. That that's fair enough to say. He's got these leadership qualities, hasn't he? And you know, people have said he he could be a, a prime minister. The way football fans seem to follow this man, Si. Well, I just think at this time in the world where leaders, political leaders, people who aren't even leaders, people who want to influence the way people feel, you know, that they use division as, as a way forward. And that, that certainly hasn't been the case with, with Jürgen Klopp. I mean, even previous Liverpool managers have, have tried that to try and gain control. And Jürgen Klopp's just been the opposite of that. He, from the day he came in, you know, he, he was quite clear with the owners that he, he felt there was something to work with there. And gradually over time, as, as obviously reshaped the team, reshaped the backroom staff. And it's quite interesting today, isn't it? That, that David Ornstein broke the story about Chris Morgan returning to the club. You know, he left in 2016. And, you know, it's quite clear, obviously Jürgen's prepared to sort of revise his, his thoughts on the physiotherapy side of things as well. So it shows you that he's an open, you know, got a very open mind. And, um, 
You know, a lot of it. It's, I think there needs to be a bit more written about. It. Maybe, maybe there's a piece coming up on the Athletic by somebody else. But you know, about his, his sort of faith. And I'm, I'm certainly not a religious person, but I, I know, you know, he takes a lot of strength from faith. People sort of a bit spooked out by religion, as I can be sometimes. But subtly, he, he, he sort of. I think it brings him a level of calm, even though people associate him with being, um, being quite wild on the touchline. I think when it matters, he's able to make very calm sometimes cold decisions and maybe that's an underrated mm. element of his uh, his management I think you know he he, he he knows how to make decisions which are for the best of the club I remember obviously there was a lot written about when uh, Buvac when he left and oh see you know he's not quite the man we all thought he was and you know he's fallen out with people you know the, the reality behind that was you know that Buvac had sort of, you know, distanced himself from from Klopp over a period of time. He didn't feel his his heart was in the job. Uh, you know, both Klopp identified that, and I think Buvac sort of felt it as as well. And any part of the way, he's always has some level of acrimony, but it wasn't quite as dramatic as people are making out. And at that time, people were saying, "Oh, Klopp, you know, doesn't his eyes and ears are gonna, you know, not going to be able to make, you know, the, the the sort of judgments, tactical judgments that he needed." But since then, Liverpool have become a better, more efficient, more ruthless team. So it just shows you that there's a lot of you know football understanding and, and tactical appreciation. That, that he, I don't think he gets the level of credit that he actually deserves for that. You know, he, he he understands what it takes to build a successful football team. And for me, you know, having a united team, a united club, is, is a part of that. And you know, for, for I've never known Liverpool to feel like this. You know, it's always felt like there's always something wrong with some elements of of uh, of the club when or the manager being in charge, but but not any longer. Classy man, demonstrated no no more so than by the the open letter that he's written to the the city of Liverpool, and he's talked about a variety of things: his love for the supporters, the passion, the songs, the commitment. Um, he also used it to criticise the scenes that were witnessed at the pier head. Um, which some put under the banner of, of celebrations the other day, James. Yeah, and you know, I think it shows just how aware Jurgen Klopp is, and you know, that in terms of that that link that he feels not yeah not just with Liverpool fans, but but also with the the city in general, because you know he you know he, he spoke the other day about you know why he he intends to stay here for for nine years. He said, which obviously takes him to the end of his current deal in twenty twenty four was. Because he said, you know, he loves the the scout soul, and he said, you know, I, I feel it. I feel, these people are different, um, and he, he loves that passion. But yeah, in that in in that open letter, you know, he he also, as you said, you know, makes it very clear there's no place for for some of those scenes we saw at the pierhead on on Friday evening. I think um, you know there was always going to be an outpouring of emotion when when Liverpool won the league after after such a long wait and. You know, and I think it—it's not probably the situation wasn't helped, but we've had so many mixed and muddled messages from from government in terms of you know what what people can and can't do, and you know you look at how packed the beaches have been and the parks and all the rest of it. So I think I think it was inevitable we were going to see some gatherings, but of course there's you know there's a huge difference between you know a, 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 you know people wanting a socially distant gathering or and and congregating in. Those kind of numbers and a small minority, sadly, you know, tarnishing not just the name of Liverpool fans, but the city with, you know, the the kind of the, the, the mindless criminal acts that we saw down there. So, yeah, I thought he, I thought his open letter was absolutely top class. You know, talking not only, you know, there was words in there about Everton as well in terms of, you know, just his admiration for for them as a club and for Carlo Ancelotti and and for you know how much he he feels a bond with this city. 
Um, and with that, I think he just feels a responsibility that he felt that he had to speak up uh, and quite rightly, you know, condemn the actions of a, of a mindless minority and, and just urge, I think, again, you know, to, to try and get that message through that, that you, you know, you know we, I know how much this means to everyone, but there's people's lives at stake here. You know, there's a, we, 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 aren't, we haven't seen the back of a global pandemic yet and, and just pleading with people to keep those celebrations low-key and under wraps until, until the time comes when, when Liverpool can finally have a parade and, and we will see you know, probably a million people plus on the streets of the city. This is The Red Agenda, uh, brought to you with James Pearce, Simon Hughes, myself, Steve Hoversall. It's brought to you every week on The Athletic. And Harry's sponsors The Red Agenda. Uh, Harry's was the brainchild of Jeff and Andy, two guys who were sick and tired of overpriced razors and their amazing quality blades are now almost half the price of the leading five-blade brand. Uh, Harry's trial set includes everything you need for a close, comfortable Shave. I don't know whether uh, you're still on that shaving ban, Simon, but um, you might need a Harry's or two at the end of this. <laughs> it's growing ever more, Steve. Yeah, OK. We'll supply you with a couple of packs. As a listener, you can start shaving with Harry's today. Uh, claim your trial set for £3.95. Support the podcast and get your set delivered, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, foaming shave gel and travel blade cover by going to harrys.com forward slash the red agenda. Right now, that's harrys.com forward slash the red agenda. Uh, it's the red agenda. And let's talk about Jordan Henderson. Uh, Simon's been writing a very extensive piece on his footballing journey. The headline, I think, is just so apt behind all this, Simon. The man who proved them wrong. Um, and you say in your piece, between 2012 and 2018, he lost almost everything there is to win. I think it's the most poignant of lines. You couldn't script this story. No. I mean, it, it's an incredible story, and I think it's in, in keeping, really, with the last 10 years of Liverpool. You know, the, the frustrations that he's had as a player have been echoed by the frustrations of the fans. And, you know, quite often he's become a lightning rod for the, for the criticism, really, for the failings of Liverpool when it's mattered. And what I love about it is, you know, in football now, I think sort of it's obviously become a younger players' game, and tend to find that you know the the younger players, if they're any good, get big moves early on, and to the big clubs, and end up you know end up achieving their dreams, you know, sometimes by the the age of twenty two, twenty three, and you know, in terms of trophies, whereas. Jordan Henderson's a bit of a throwback in, in some well, I don't know a throwback's the right term, but he's 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 done it in a totally different way that he's actually getting the validation for his uh, determination towards the back end of his career, really. And it, it shows it should show a lot of footballers, I think, that you know, sometimes it doesn't go in that like, you know, sort of straight trajectory of success. You know, it, sometimes there is a lot to be said for hanging in there and and, and proving yourself and sticking around at a club, even if a manager might not fancy you straight away. You know, I think players sort of don't back themselves quite enough sometimes. And he, he you know, he could have been sold by, by Brendan Rodgers and gone. He could have been a Fulham player in the summer of 2012. Um, and his Liverpool career could have been over like that. But he actually backed himself to stay. And all these years later, he's now, you know, the first captain since Graham Souness to win well, the, the European Cup or the Champions League and, and the league in successive seasons, although Sunes did it the other way around. You know, he's he's gone where Steven Gerrard wasn't able to get to um, as captain of Liverpool. And, you know, I think I, I think I wrote in the piece, the most successful, I don't think there's ever been a, a captain from the northeast to do what he's done, you know, for, for, his, for his actual region. It's an incredible achievement when you think, 
you know, the, the number of footballers that the northeast of the country produced. So, you know, I went, I went to Sunderland and, and, and this was before lockdown and I met quite a lot of people who'd coached him and, you know, sort of associated with him. And it's quite clear to me that the, the, the struggle of his, of his career you know, it was before he'd even taken off. You know, he was quite close to getting released by Sunderland at, at 16. He was the last player mm. in that year intake to get kept on. And that was because they, they were, had question marks over his physique. So, yeah, I mean, the, the idea that Jordan Henderson's a sort of an academy footballer who's just had it easy and has taken safe options throughout his life, I, I just think is actual myth. I, I don't think it actually correlates with, with what's happened both in his youth career because he, he started at Sunderland before you know, before the, there was academy football. It was like a centre of excellence and very, you know, he was able to play for his Sunday league team, able to play for his school team. You know, he'd, he'd experienced sort of what... Maybe that one of the last sort of players of, of of his kind, really, who was able to sort of come up through the ranks of playing Sunday League and playing with his mates. So there's a lot of misconceptions about him. Actually, I, I think he, he he's he's a far more um, sort of normal, you know, certainly not like a Lillishall sort of footballer who who never gets anything wrong. He, he's he's had it hard throughout his life, and I'm just delighted for him that he, that, he, that he's got to where he is now because it just shows you where you can get to with a bit of perseverance. Yeah, I wonder what it says about Jordan Henderson that he's he's finally overturned all those thoughts. Simon there referring to the the doubt that surrounded him from supporters, managers, even the club owners as well, James. Yeah, I think you know he's had to he's had to overcome a lot, hasn't it? And I think that's why, from you know having had the privilege of, of reporting on his Liverpool career, it's it it gives you that extra sense of satisfaction for him. I think this Liverpool team is packed full of great stories from. You know, you look at someone like Andy Robertson's journey and Georgino Wijnaldum and there's so many like that. But, you know, I don't think anything quite comes close to Jordan Henderson in terms of, you know, where where he was at. You know, that first season at Liverpool, you know, when he was stuck out on the right hand side, it was you know, it was immensely difficult for him. And, you know, you, you did think, you know, got, you know, it, it was hard to watch at times. because He was like a rabbit caught in the headlights and. You know, he'd come with a, you know, a, a, what was at the time was a big price tag, and and you just thought it wasn't easy to watch. And then, you know, obviously over the years that followed, you know, the fact that Brendan Rodgers was was more than happy to pack him off to Fulham at one point, but you know, he, he just refusing to throw in the towel. And I think the most pleasing thing for me with Henderson this season is, you know, I think for a long time there's been almost like, in some quarters, almost grudging admiration for what an amazing professional he was and what a role model and his attitude was first class. And, but it always annoyed me that that almost, you know, it seemed to, there was, there wasn't enough of an emphasis on just how good a footballer he was as if, as if he just got where he was just because he's, you know, he he tries really hard, which is obviously absolutely ridiculous when you look at the managers at club and international level that have repeatedly played him. Um, So, you know, he's, I think he's gone to the next level on the back of winning the Champions League last season. I think, I think in terms of self belief, in terms of that, what probably felt like a never ending battle to silence the doubters, that that was like, you know, that that was the trigger really. You know, I've I've now lifted the European Cup with Liverpool. You know, you know, almost like anyone who anyone who now says anything negative or or questions or questions it, you know, it's just not even worth listening to that opinion because it's nonsensical. Um, and then this season, I think he, you know, he, his form has been the best of his career. Um, you know, we've seen how versatile he is. He can, he can play the holding role when he needs to. He can add a creative spark in the final third when, when he's given a license to push further forward. And he, you know, you only had to see the, the drop in Liverpool's performance levels 
shortly before the coronavirus shutdown when he was out injured to see just how integral he is. He sets the tone and he is a he's a revelation in terms of what what he's done for this football club. And you know, when when I did that interview with Stephen Gerrard the other week, you know, Stephen Gerrard does not dish out plaudits easily. Yet his words were so warm and genuine surrounding Jordan Henderson about, you know, not only, you know, the way in which he's conducted himself, but the quality that he's injected into what is now, you know, a, a trophy winning machine. For me, it's up there with one of sports most poignant moments that image of Jordan in floods of tears hugging his dad after winning the Champions League in Madrid pure love relief if we, if we talk about Jordan relationships what's his relationship with Jurgen Klopp Simon very very close I mean uh, he absolutely loves Klopp you could tell I think you could tell that with the interview you know an hour or so after the you know after they clinched the title on Thursday where he was speaking about Klopp and became quite emotional I think he, he's he's felt like he's not just got a manager there, he's got a person that he can confide in. And it's not been, you know, as we, we said, it's not been easy for Jordan at any point. And I think, you know, when I, when I speak to people there that, that they that in Sunderland, you know, they, they all say that his relationship with him is just, is close and he's always felt like he's been able to confide in him. And I think what Klopp likes about him as well is, is that despite sort of maybe some of his own personal problems. He, he always seeks, to, or the, the personal criticism that he's taken, Klopp's always been impressed by the way he sort of seeks to to help others as well. I think he can relate to that. Um, like there's one story that was told when, when he was when he was a younger player at Sunderland about, there was a lad at Sunderland called Nathan Luscombe who was a very, very talented left winger. And he came from quite a sort of a, a difficult background in Gateshead and, didn't always get the support from his family that, that he, he would have, most players in that team did get. And, you know, after before big important games in the FA Youth Cup, the, the Sunderland's players used to train in the morning and then go back to their homes because they all lived pretty close to, you know, the centre of Sunderland. You know, there's a big identity about that team, all local lads. And Nathan Luscombe didn't always have the, the means to get back to Gateshead. So Jordan Henderson said, look, you can come and stay at mine. You know, you just stay at mine until we've got to go back to the ground for the game. And, you know, went out of his way to sort of really help a player who, who didn't have the level of support that he had. So I think that says a lot about him, you know, as, as a younger person and the way uh, he was then. And, you know, from what you hear, you know, from, from other players and the way he treats other players and the level of respect that he's got for other people around him. You know, that, that that just followed him throughout his life. I don't know what James might say differently, but I mean, I don't profess to know him that well. You know, I've, I've only sort of ever interviewed him, but he's always just handled himself. He's been top class, you know, just since day one. You know, always respectful, makes good eye contact, I think. You know, looks people dead in the eye. Those sorts of things matter, I think, when it comes to measuring a person's character and sort of trying to appreciate his his suitability to become a Liverpool player because I think you've got to front things up as, as a Liverpool player because you're always under the microscope and he, he's he's added more criticism than most players over the last 10 years so yeah I mean as I said the, the piece is sort of analysing really how his, his his life as a kid sort of set him up for this and you sort of realise there's a lot of things that happened that have probably made him a bit tougher than, than most probably, a lot of people probably think he is. It's well worth checking out. Uh, it's on The Athletic. Now, let's do some quick-fire questions on the Red Agenda uh, inbox. Plenty is always um, coming in. Let's go to uh, Rushy, a.k.a. James Pierce first. And uh, Samuel says, uh, is Klopp the greatest Liverpool manager since Shankly and Paisley? He's 100% up there for me. It's, it's hard to make comparisons, isn't it? Yeah, I, it, is, it is really difficult. I think... I think what what I said recently, which I, I think I still stand by, is I think 
I don't think anyone has had a bigger impact on Liverpool Football Club than Jurgen Klopp since Bill Shankly. I think there's been some unbelievable, iconic names, of course, in you know that that half century or so since, and people that have been unbelievably successful. But you think, you know, for Paisley and and for and for Fagan and Dalglish, it was it was very much, you know, that they 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 walked into a a club that was used to winning and and managed to maintain that tradition. You know, with the the boot room philosophy and all the rest of it, and you know, we really top quality additions to the squad. They were able to evolve and keep winning. I think, you know, I think what where where you have to put Klopp alongside Shankly is is in the kind of the you know, the state of the club when each of them walked in, because you know Liverpool had effectively dropped down to a mid table team when when Klopp took over. The whole place had been on a downward spiral for probably the. The previous eighteen months, since the kind of slug in the guts and missing out on the title under Rodgers, and it was even you know it's easy to forget that Liverpool weren't even you know they'd had what probably one Champions League campaign in the previous six or seven you know it was you know they finished sixth, seventh, eighth they were you know it was this was a club you know especially on the back of losing Suarez and, and making such a hash of replacing him that was drifting to, towards mediocrity so. To, to take the club from there to where it's at now in the space of five years, you know, Klopp may shrug it off like he did to me the other day when I when I put it to him. But um, whether he likes it or not, he, he does deserve to be mentioned in the same breath as those icons now. Absolutely. Uh, let's go to uh, an easy one from Mr. Mersey, who says, Simon, regardless of who, what is our transfer budget likely to be? <laughs> That's one of the big secrets in football, isn't it? At the moment, it's trying to figure uh, that one come out. Come on, to me, Simon, um, you must know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'm behind the contract negotiations, so um, no. The, tr- the truthful answer is uh, I, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not going to pretend that not I, I know enough. that. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, Liverpool last summer obviously spent virtually no money other than on Seb van den Berg and, you know, um, a backup goalkeeper and the sort of the signing on fee for Adrian. And so, you know, they should in theory be in quite a, a decent position, but I just think... I've mentioned it a few times that the owners, rightly or wrongly, and people will have an opinion on this, and I understand it because, you know, the theory goes, and I do, I do, I do believe that it's true that you know you, when you're at the very top, you know, you, you try and use that status to to bring in players that are going to improve the, the team and, and ensure that you stay at the top for that bit longer. And it's fair to say, I think most players in world football now would want to play for Liverpool, wouldn't they? There's never been a better time to come and play for Liverpool. Got a great manager, great team, you know, great atmosphere around the club. So they're they're in a position that they've never really been in before, and it it, it would be obviously frustrating if they they can't capitalise on that. But I do realise that the club, the owners have got to treat the club responsibly and ensure, you know, that they, they could take a little bit of a risk and and and. And think well. Let's just see how this sort of mad period in modern history maps out, because you know, as we've said, the players, the players are still sort of just about hitting the peak. I would say in terms of the age, they could probably afford to wait another six months to twelve months to really go in and put that investment in if they have to. Um, because I just think until the club knows whether fans are going to be able to come through the gates at any point soon, it's going to be very difficult to put huge sums of money, uh, commit mm. huge sums of money on players. And I know that's frustrating for fans, but they should also remember where they are at the moment. And there is a chance that this team kicks on again with 
uh, the, the players that they've already got and the players who are coming up through the system. It's it's a bit of a risk, but I think that that, that um, your back and Klopp's sort of judgment on this and and is 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 support of the decision as well, because you know I remember a couple of years ago people were. Outraged when they didn't get Nab- Nabil Fakir through. Um, I could understand. I mean, James James could write a book on that one. Um, yeah. But look at look how that turned out. You know, wasn't so bad in the end, was it? So I, I just think people have got to remain a bit calm. I mean, they've just been crowned champions, haven't they? But yeah, it's like yeah, it's like it can't be a better time to be following Liverpool. Yeah, I mean, I, I did. I asked Tom Werner about that last week when I spoke to him, and you know, I think it, it was clear from that conversation that. I think it will be a, a relatively quiet summer. I think, um, you know, he he was he stressed about you know the impact of of coronavirus on on the on the finances and and just the the uncertainty. You know, he he talked about how much of the revenue, um, you know, comes from the commercial side of things, which is obviously heavily linked to to match day income. Um, I think you only have to look at I think what's Liverpool Liverpool's wage bill in excess of three hundred and. 10 320 million pound a year so even you know even since the shutdown they would have paid out probably you know 80 odd million pound in in wages with with next to nothing coming back in the other way so um yeah and i, I just think there, that some clubs will gamble you know simon talks to mention there about the word risk and i think those who are absolutely miles behind probably feel as if they will have to take risks this summer but I just don't think Liverpool will do that in the position they're in. I think, you know, you look at the quality of the young players coming through as well. You know, I know that they see Curtis Jones as the as the perfect man to kind of step into the Lana's boots as he as he moves on. You know, they see a greater role for Nico Williams, for Harvey Elliott, um, you know, Minamino, who we've barely seen really in a Liverpool shirt so far. He'll have a bigger role to play next season. Um so, you know, Naby Keita is another one. So I think, yeah, I think in an ideal world, you would want one or two signings this summer to just to give a, a bit greater depth, you know, probably, you know, cover at left back and, and another attacker, which I do feel as if Liverpool are short of. But um, yeah, it, we're, it's it, it's not going to be you know a crazy one because this is such a it's such a stable team and a stable squad that. You know, as we said before, with the age of these players, it's it's just a case of fine tuning rather than any kind of major major kind of renovations needing to be done. And before we get to that point, there's a trophy that needs to be presented. And Pat King finally says any word on the presentation and uh, the Chelsea game as well, because Chelsea are obviously in the FA Cup. But what about the trophy presentation itself? Can you can you clarify that, Simon? James is in a far better position than me to clarify. Go on then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you know what? It's it's funny because I mean it was when I checked with the Premier League last week. Um, the message I got coming back was it it would be the um, the Chelsea home game because they they said you know the tradition is that we always do it on the on the on the on the last home game of the season regardless of when when the title's actually wrapped up. Um, but of course, yeah, with Chelsea going through that will that will get moved. Um, and I know from a conversation I had with the Premier League. Very early on, actually, no, probably it was probably before the before the season was even halted, that they did say that if the last home game was midweek, they would consider moving it to the home game before, um, because they'd rather do I think the trophy presentation on a on a weekend game, which which I think then would make it Burnley. I think that's the the, the home game before that. So um, yeah, that's I think that's still to be determined a hundred percent, but that's that's my understanding. 
Right, as soon as we've got news on it, James will deliver it. I can't speak highly enough of the pieces on the site at the moment. Uh, Jurgen Klopp, the fist-pumping genius, the tactical innovations that have transformed Klopp's side, the Werner exclusive, Simon's piece on Jordan Henderson, all on there now. Boys, thank you very much. Cheers, Cheers And there we go. That was another Red Agenda. Be back in a week.